Welcome to Act Online, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Today we are bringing you a conversation between Acton's Director of Communications, Eric Cohn, and the Jack Miller Family Foundation's Director of Freedom Initiatives, Rabbi Jonathan Greenberg. In this episode, they discuss a new surge in anti-Semitic violence in America as tensions between Israel and Gaza continue to grow. Jews have been beaten in broad daylight. Synagogues have been vandalized. Pro-Israel demonstrations have resulted in riots. And major cities across the United States have experienced explosive growth in anti-Semitic attacks. How did this happen? And why is this hate becoming a trend? You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Act Online on our website at actonorg slash If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act Online is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Jonathan Greenberg is Director of Freedom Initiatives at the Jack Miller Family Foundation. He's the former Midwest political director for APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, and an ordained reform rabbi. Jonathan Greenberg, welcome to Act in Line. Thanks, Eric. So I'm going to start out with the obvious but somewhat stupid sounding question, I think. Why do people hate the Jews? Um, that's a great, that's actually a really good question. And it's one that um, I think Jewish thinkers have been struggling with for a long time, at, at least hundreds of years. Um, I, uh, my favorite explanation is the one offered by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the late uh, great chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, who said that Jew hatred is a virus, that it's, uh, it, it's spread from person to person. It, uh, it's uh, a part of human DNA uh, for whatever reason. And um, that it's not something that people seem to be able to get away from. Um, I, I think that uh, you know a larger, maybe more Hannah Arendt uh, view of it is that people need to hate someone, um, and Jews are an obvious people while also being a small people. Meaning, we tend to occupy positions uh, of significance in culture uh, and politics and media and elsewhere. We're visible. Um, but we're also very small. So we are both uh, visible and vulnerable. Um, but there, I mean, there are probably dozens of reasons. I think that, you know, ask an anti-Semite, get a, get a separate response, right? But uh, I, I think that I, I like Rabbi Sachs's view that it's, uh, it's a virus. And um, uh, like any other virus, asking why the virus exists uh, may not be the the best question. The, the virus exists because it exists. The question is, what do you do about it? I assume it is what social scientists call an overdetermined phenomenon, that there are plenty of explanations that um, are true and perhaps not sufficient in themselves, but they give some explanation that helps inform the greater understanding. Um, you, you pointed out that for a, a what is a small population, this sense of outsized influence um, you know, you, you certainly hear that in what is some of the, I guess I would say, casual anti-Semitism that exists out there. That's mm-hmm. like, I don't even want to say that it's the socially acceptable kind of anti-Semitism, but it's the, the kind of thing that gets joked about in a way that isn't immediately reprehensible to people, that there are a lot of Jews in, in media and, and are wealthy. Um, is there... I guess explain that to me. I mean, it's you don't you you do see groups out there where you have a lot of overrepresentation, and we we have this obsession right now with what you, the conversation you hear about equity, where we think every single part of society people should be demographically equally represented. You know that, that their share within Stuyvesant High School in New York should be reflective of the share of the ethnic population breakout in New York City. I think that that's illogical. Uh, I think that that's crazy. But nonetheless, we have an obsession with it. So, I mean, is there just is, is there something in the Jewish ethos that leads to those kind of outcomes, or what? If any insights do you have on that? 
So um, I don't know if you saw this video, but there was a video circulating of the Pakistani foreign minister on CNN with Bianca Ladraga, and she was interviewing him about the situation between Israel and Hamas and Gaza. And he talked about how Israel was losing the media war, uh, you know, despite their advantages or their, uh, I forget what the word he was used, but to her credit, the reporter uh, circled back and said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, and he laughed and it was this like Voldemort kind of laugh and he looked like comical, like you would see in a movie. Uh, and he said, deep pockets, right? That the, right, they own the, and this is the foreign minister of a, I mean, this is the foreign minister of a not insignificant country. So um, the, you know, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't know where that comes from uh, other than um, having it, you know, talk to you and, and seeing things that you choose to believe that, but the, the overrepresentation is real. Um, and it, by the way, the, some of that is muted, more muted that, you know, Jews own the banks, Jews own Hollywood. And some of it is, you know, um, much more of the Der Sturmer variety. I see stuff, I see stuff on, on Twitter all the time. That's, that's far more, you know, portraits of hook nosed Jews running the media, things like that. Um, there, like all stereotypes, there is some truth to it um, that Jews are dramatically overrepresented in finance, in media, in it, it used to be in international banking. It's much less today than it used to be. The 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 Rothschild name gets thrown around quite a bit. Um, I'm not sure that's a meaningful word in international banking anymore, but it sure used to be. Right, 150, 200 years ago, it was a significantly more important name. Um, and, you know, so those, but it's, but what's interesting, every time I see somebody refer to the Rothschilds, I think that's a really good example of, of uh, something that just stuck and is still with us for absolutely no reason today, but it's just, it just stuck. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question. I, I, I don't think this is the, I don't think it's the kind of thing that will ever uh, go away. I don't think it's the kind of thing that you can, um, understand rationally it's uh it's like trying to explain mental illness you know you know why did so and so do such and such well you know it, it just is it's not rational there's no rational reason and if you cured right i'm making air quotes if you cured um the announced cause of a person's anti-semitism they would find another reason um so you know i hate jews because whatever they, they own the banks. If you, if you found a way to convince them that wasn't true, they would hate Jews for another reason. Uh, the, the underlying, the, the underlying hatred is what it is. It doesn't have a rational basis. Let's define one more term before we move on. Um, we're, he, we're here ostensibly to talk about anti-Semitism. You referred to it earlier as Jew hatred. Mm -hmm. Um, what is anti-Semitism? Do you consider it in any way different from what you had termed as Jew hatred? Is it synonymous or should we make any kind of a distinction there? Yeah. I, so um, Barry Weiss, by the way, wrote a really good book on this subject, and I would encourage people to, to pick it up. Um, and she explores this. I, I don't like the term anti-Semitism. I think it, it, uh, it, it comes from a different time. Um, and, and just recently the Jewish community has started spelling the word correctly. It used to be that you would see anti hyphen Semitism, usually Semitism with a capital S. And I never liked that spelling because Semitism isn't a thing and being anti it isn't a thing either. Right. So anti-Semitism is uh, just not a great word. I, I like Jew hatred better, um, because I think that's more descriptive, but I think people use those two things. I certainly use them synonymously. And what, what it is, is a, a, a hatred of Jewish people, which is why I like Jew hatred better. Um, uh, and the, the uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance has an extensive definition of anti-Semitism that's been broadly accepted uh, by countries and international institutions and some American institutions, a growing number of them. Um, and basically it comes down to a, a hatred or loathing or mistrust of people based on their um, Judaism. Uh, and the, the, the problem you run into there is what's Judaism? Because you can be Jewish and not be religious at all. So it's not just a religion. It's a, a people. It's a 
uh, nation, it's, uh, there, it's an ethnicity, it's a culture, it's all of these things. And so the reason anti-Semitism or Jew hatred is hard to define is because Judaism is a little hard to define. So we've seen an increase in violent attacks against Jewish people. Um, it, this has been happening, it's, it seems to me, in waves for a while now. Uh, and, and as you just noted, this, this is the kind of thing that goes back well throughout history and is well documented. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it appears to me as a less informed observer of these things that there are ebbs and flows to it. And that right now we've seen kind of increasing crashing waves of it. Do you think that's accurate? And uh, why is this happening to this degree right now? So the first thing I think it's important to understand is that social and cultural instability has always throughout human history, well, at least throughout recorded history, uh, led to um, difficult situations for Jewish populations. So anytime you have a Jewish population in an area that's going through significant social or cultural upheaval, um, uh, that Jewish population tends to not fare very well. Uh, And this is true throughout European history, it's been less true in the United States, although it's to, to a lesser extent it is true. Um, but I would argue that we're in the middle right now of a global disruption um, and not just this predates the pandemic by quite a bit uh, that I, I think when you know we're hundreds of years past this point and historians are looking back at it, this will be a, a piece of a much larger era of disruption just based on the way that we communicate with each other as humans. And so, you know, the, the, the internet and, uh, you know, globalization are such huge forces in all of human civilization um, that it doesn't surprise me that we're seeing uh, anti-Semitism in a number of different places, not just in the United States. I mean, you've been seeing it in, uh, across in European cities. Uh, you've been seeing it up in Canada. Uh, so this is not just happening in the U.S., although the fact that it's also happening in the U.S. is deeply troubling to me because, again, the U.S. has typically not been a place where these kind of things – Jews don't get attacked on the streets in the United States for being Jews. It just That's not something that happens here. It's that, that, that's Europe. Um, that's the Muslim world. Uh, that doesn't happen here. Uh, George Washington uh, wrote a letter to the Newport, Rhode Island synagogue um, – early on in our history, uh, talking about how the United States was going to be different uh, in this regard. And the United States has lived up to that. And so the, it's, it's very strange to see it here, but it's, it's not strange to see it in the context of uh, massive social and cultural disruption. So you, obviously we don't need to document the history of it in Europe, or at least the 20th century history of it in Europe. That's pretty clear, I think, to most people. But as you pointed out, in America, it's much less common. It hasn't been something that has been uh, a regular occurrence. So while we could point to Europe and say, you know, oh, it's happening again in Europe, and we there would be a bit of historical understanding injected into that statement, there isn't in the United States. So why, if the United States has been immune to it for so long, is it starting to happen here? So I think there are um, there are polarized forces on both extremes of the political spectrum that have given rise to uh, the kind of swamp from which anti-Semitism rises. Um, on the right, you know, America First nationalism and the sense going back hundreds of years, that Jews are a a foreign presence, are loyal to something other um, than where they are. So the the idea that we're loyal either to each other, or today it would be that we're loyal to the state of Israel. Um, In Europe, you know, hundreds of years ago, it was that Jews were only loyal to each other and couldn't be trusted. Today, it's Jews are loyal to Israel and can't be trusted. By the way, I wish Jews were a little bit more loyal to Israel. Um, that's probably a separate conversation, but anti-Israelism certainly feeds into uh, contemporary anti-Semitism. Um, on the left, then, uh, is the rise of a really angry, virulent 
uh, form of anti, what I, I guess anti-Zionism, anti-Israelism, I'm not sure what to call it. Um, uh, and this, uh, this ascendant fringe left um, in the American left that uh, views, you know, intersectionality, that views uh, each struggle as connected to every other struggle. Um, and so um, it's not enough to be uh, you know, pro-LGBT rights, pro, uh, you know, pro-police reform in the face of Black Lives Matter movement. It, you have to also be anti-Israel. Uh, you can call yourself, by the way, pro-Palestinian, but uh, I would argue that an awful lot of people associated with the pro-Palestinian movement are not, in fact, pro-Palestinian. They're simply anti-Israel. Um, and so that uh, kind of ascendant group of people, politically ascendant, I mean, uh, they are the ones who create this uh, environment on the left where anti saying anti-Semitic things and, and now in the last few weeks, you know, anti-Semitic violence is, is, uh, is possible and is really even rewarded. I mean, you've got members of Congress uh, going on the floor and making you know, horrible, untrue accusations about Israel that fit in with creating a culture where if you attack Jews, you're doing something about evil, right? So if you go... If you say that that the world's only Jewish country is committing genocide, well, what is it? Genocide's a unique kind of evil, right? What are you willing to do to stop genocide? Um, and if someone is defending that place that's committing genocide, well, what are you willing to do to that person? Um, because they're clearly siding with genocide. So the 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 moral the moral imperative that you create when you talk like that uh, makes pretty much anything a reasonable response, right? So if, if I've got a group of Jews over here who are defending Israel um, and Israel's committing genocide, then I'm you know, able to give myself moral clearance to do pretty much anything. And so you got members of Congress who are doing that and, and very few members of Congress who are willing to stand up and name it. You've got all of these people, I'm sure you saw this, all these people whose responses then to the anti-Semitism, and this is this is what really scares me. It, it's not that there are anti-Semites out there. I know that there are anti-Semites out there. What scares me is people who are supposed to be our friends, um, people who are members of our community, who can't just condemn it. Uh, you saw all these. I, I tweeted out a bunch of examples of these, not just from politicians, but from people in um, who are cultural engines, people in Hollywood and music, and um, talking about how they, they can't just condemn anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is bad. Beating up Jews is bad. It always has to be all hatred is bad, right? They're all lives mattering Jews, right? So all hatred is bad. Or my favorite one was anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are bad. As if I, I, I wasn't aware that there were Islamophobic acts hang, happening in the streets of America the way that they are. There was a 75% jump last month in anti-Semitic attacks, um, according to the Anti-Defamation League. I'm not aware of any similar jump in Islamophobic violence. Uh, if there is one, I'd like to know about it so I can condemn it, but I'm not aware that it's happening. So why are we condemning anti-Semitism and Islamophobia? Why not just condemn what's actually happening? Uh, and to me, this goes back to leadership failing to stomp it out when it started happening, how what three, three, four years ago. You know, you had Ilhan Omar come in to Congress and make a series of anti-Semitic statements, um, talking about the Israel lobby being all about the Benjamins that, you know, were Jews are just buying off members of Congress and uh, a number of other things that she had said. And um, instead of passing a resolution condemning what she said, uh, the House Democrats put up a resolution condemning only uh, all all form of hatred and bigotry. So not specifically focusing on anti-Semitism. And that, those, are, those are people who are supposed to be our friends. Before we move on to some of the questions about Israel and, and Zionism that you brought up there, because there's a lot I want to explore there. Uh, David French's Sunday newsletter on May 23rd posed a question in the headline as he talked a lot about the George Washington letter that you uh, that you referenced earlier. Mm -hmm. And the, the subject, the headline of the piece is, Can America Be America When Jews Are Beaten in the Streets? Um, I think I might know the, what you think the answer to that question is, but I wanted to just throw the question to you. No, but I, I, I think that that ex I think this exists in a much larger set of concerns for can America be America, right? But yes, this is one of those things. I think any 
yes, any ethnicity that's having this kind of thing happen to them in the streets of the United States is a problem for the American idea. Um, we are not a land or blood people. Um, you know, Lincoln talked about this in 1858 in his speech in Chicago. It's something that I love to, to point out to people that um, Lincoln's giving this speech and he's saying at the time that uh, half of our population can't trace its lineage back to the United States when uh, the declaration was written. Um, and so he's saying half of our population, their ancestors would have been foreign in the, to the United States when the document was written. But he says, if you, when they look at the Declaration of Independence, they see the father of all moral idea in them. Uh, and, and they feel like they are blood of the blood and flesh of the flesh of the men who wrote the Declaration. And so they are. Um, so the whole idea of the country is that it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or what color you are or what religion. You're an American based on your acceptance of this idea. Uh, and I don't know that we agree on that idea anymore. That's a, probably another conversation. But certainly then if you have groups of people being beaten in the street um, because of their religion, their ethnicity, anything like that, I think that's un-American. Um, and uh, and it, it, it suggests a deeper set of problems. In bringing that up, it makes me think about some of what I've thought of what is going on in the American political right over the last number of years, that the the understanding of uh, conservatism in America, that you know, be, because conservatism by the nature of just the uh, simple definition of the term, you, you are concerned with older things. And so there's this assumption that conservatism must be then like the oldest of political ideologies. And in America, it's actually the youngest, because you don't have the understanding of conservatism that would have been generally uh, undisagreed about until the last several years, mm -hmm. um, that it was conserving the American founding. There seems to be a strain now, a more pronounced strain on the right, that seeks to conserve something older than the American founding. Yeah. And the only possible place that I see this being tied back to is to Europe in the kind of what, what Hayek was talking about in his essay, Why I'm Not a Conservative, that, you know, he, you read that essay and it's pretty clear to me that those types of conservatives, the ones conserving the American liberal founding, that's not what he was referring to. He was referring to the blood and soil, throne and altar nationalist types yeah. from Europe. And now there's this new obsession with nationalism. There's this new obsession with some trying to figure out some kind of blood and soil version of American conservatism, at least that's my opinion, um, that borrows more from European understandings. In, in your opinion, do you think that these things are tied together, that as, as the American, certain parts of the American right, I want to be abundantly clear about this, I am not making any kind of a broad indictment of American conservatism or the political right. I think this is still very fringy. Mm -hmm. um, but nonetheless, as you have these sectors that are reaching back to Europe, where these problems have been more pronounced, that as they're trying to borrow these concepts, whether they're trying to or not, they're bringing some of the inherent anti-Semitic ideas along with them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's true. And what really, uh, what really stands out to me about that is you know, Jewish Americans were here at the founding of the country. Jews were a part of the founding of the country. Chaim Solomon was, uh, you know, one of the people who Washington relied upon to buy weapons and ammunition for his army. Um, you know, the, there is a presence um, that goes back to before the founding of the country, but um, to a certain segment uh, of the right, and I agree with you, I think it's relatively small for now, but it's something that bears watching. Um, to a certain segment of the right, uh, we're we're a foreign entity still, um, and that, that there is no amount of longevity that we can have in this country uh, and still be considered part of the country. We're a foreign entity. I'll give you this. I'll give you a quick story. I think you might have heard me tell this story before. Um, in 2015, um, I went to the anti-Iran nuclear deal rally. I think it was September of 2015. Um, Ted Cruz spoke and uh, Trump spoke and um, a few other people. And uh, there was this uh, line of left-wing protesters snaking through the crowd, yelling and screaming and, and videotaping. 
and uh, video, you know, taking video of people's reactions, obviously to put it on YouTube and embarrass the crowd. The guy in front of me starts screaming at them. And I should have known not to say anything because he didn't seem real well hinged. But, uh, but I said, dude, they're videoing. They're just going to take you and put you on YouTube and make you look crazy. And he wheels around on me and he says, where are you from? And I've never heard that question asked. Like he was angry. Where are you from? And I I said, I'm from Illinois. Uh, And he says, no, before that. I was like, well, I was born in Indiana. And he's like, where are your parents from? And I had never, I don't think I, I I grew up um, the only Jewish kid in pretty much every school I went to in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I have never been asked that question. Where are your parents? Like, accusatorily, where are your parents from? I was like, my mother was born. And I said to him, I, I don't know why I explained it, but I said to him, my mom was born in Brooklyn and my dad was born in Columbus, Ohio. And I thought that would end it, right? No, he wanted to know where their parents were from, right? So, and and I, I had I gone back to the Mayflower, it still wouldn't have been enough. Uh, and I think that I chalked it up to one crazy person in the crowd. And that's probably what it was at the time. But again, contagions spread if they aren't dealt with. And I I think that that contagion has spread a little. And I think it's something that we, you know, I'm I'm a conservative. I think that it's something that we on the right should be concerned about and keep an eye on. The irony of those conversations always being that pretty much no matter the person, um, with very limited exception, if you go back far enough, of course, you're going to find out that their parents are from somewhere other than America because right. uh, because of the nature of the founding of America. Right. Um, let's turn our attention to Israel. Um, you hear, as, as you mentioned before, that there are various ways that this is talked about. So you'll have people who are saying that they're not anti-Semitic, they don't hate Jews, they're anti-Zionist, or that um, they're just critics of Israeli policy, uh, and being a critic of Israel doesn't mean that you hate Jews. Um, So could you break down these different categories? I mean, so like, what is, we've talked about what is anti-Semitism. I think anti being anti-Israel is just pretty clear. Israel is a country and anything thus the country does, you're opposed to it. Okay, you're anti-Israel. Right. Um, what is anti-Zionism and how how much, I guess, elasticity is there in these terms that uh, you have arguments over? Can, can you be anti-Israel or anti-Zionist and not be anti-Semitic? So you can... You can certainly criticize Israel because if you couldn't criticize uh, Israel or Israeli policy or the Israeli government without being anti-Semite, then every Jew in Israel would be, <laughs> I mean, an anti-Semite. So that that doesn't make any sense. I, Zionism is simply the belief that the Jewish people deserve to have a homeland in the land of Israel. So that's that's all Zionism is. Uh, it's it's a hundred probably in the late 1850s, early 1860s, you start seeing articles uh, in the Jewish communities of Europe talking about the creation of the Jewish state. So that makes it, what, 150 years old. Um, as, a, as a philosophy, there were always Jews who were, until the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948, there were Jews who believed that a state of Israel should not be established. There are still Jews, especially ultra-Orthodox Jews, who do not believe that uh, the state of Israel should exist, that only the Messiah should establish uh, a Jewish state in uh, the ancient land of Israel, and that the current state, therefore, is something that is an abomination to God. And there's that belief. It's a very small group of people in the Jewish community. Um, But the movement that ordained me, the reform movement, um, held until the 1930s that uh, we did not need a Jewish homeland, that America, in fact, was our Jewish homeland. Um, and that the establishment of the state of Israel was not uh, was not something that the reform movement supported. And that was really until the 1930s when the movement um, took off more uh, in the American Jewish community. So the, so to be anti-Zionist, I think, in 1930 made a lot more sense than it m- makes to be anti-Zionist after 1940. Why are, what are your anti-Zionist? So what does that mean should happen to the 7 million Jews who live in Israel today? You know, the Zionist project exists. So if you're anti-Zionist, what is it? What do you do about it? The other thing I think about anti-Zionism is 
if you are someone who broadly opposes all religio and ethno-nationalism, then I think you're fine being anti-Zionist, right? Because you would oppose every other religious country or ethnic country. So if you oppose all religio-ethno-nationalist movements, fine, be an anti-Zionist. But if you're fine with most religio-ethno-nationalism and you only have a problem with the Jewish version of it, I think that says something about what your problem really is. Uh, you know, if you are uh, critical of only one uh, ethno-nationalist uh, experiment, uh, I think that, that I think that's anti-Semitic. Um, so I, I do think that it's possible to be anti-Zionist and not anti-Semitic. It's just pretty rare. Um, I also think that it's become, uh, especially on the left. Um, it's become a way for people to be anti-Semitic uh, safely, um, almost in a genteel way, the way, you know, maybe country club Republicans used to be anti-Semitic or, the, or you know, the British aristocracy used to be anti-Semitic. They, they have found a way uh, to be genteel about it, to, to mask it behind something that's socially acceptable. Um, and uh, again, I would fall back on uh, the number of people who care deeply about this uh, issue who aren't Jewish or aren't Muslim um, is really pretty staggering. The amount of media attention that this relatively small conflict with a relative pretty low body count, actually, the, the, the amount of attention that it gets is really disproportionate. Um, and, you know, again, you have to ask yourself, why? Why, can't, why does the media care about this, but it doesn't care about Chechnya? Why does the media care about this, but they don't care about the Ukraine? Why do they care about this, but they don't care about Tibet? Why do they care about this, but they don't care about Uyghur Muslims? Why do they care about this, but they don't care about the Turkish occupation of Cyprus? Why do they care about this, but they don't care about the Western Sahara? I could go on and on, right? So why? Um, what is it about this situation that is different? I'll tell you, it's the Jews are involved. Um, and that's really the only difference I see. So sure, be, look, be critical of Israeli policy. I'm critical of Israeli policy. I'm generally not critical of Israeli policy in public because Israel has plenty of public enemies and I don't need to add to their voices. Um, but privately, certainly I'm critical of things that the Israeli government does. Um, that's fine. I'm critical of my own government and that doesn't make me anti-American. But, you know, it. The, the International Holocaust Remembrance uh, Alliance has this uh, definition. I, I have it in front of me. I don't want to read the whole thing. It's long. But, you know, it, it, and it lists examples, which are, you, you can't have the definition without the examples, which tells you how complicated it is. You can't just have a definition. It has to have examples. But it's making mendacious, dehumanizing, demonizing, or stereotypical allegations about Jews, such as the power of Jews as collective, et cetera, et cetera. Where's the, some of the Israel ones? Um, accusing Jewish citizens of being more loyal to Israel uh, or to the alleged priorities of Jews worldwide, denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, e.g. by claiming the existence of the state of Israel as is a racist endeavor. That's a, that's a good one. You know, the, every people on earth is allowed to have a country. Um, if you don't believe the Jews are allowed to do that, then you need to explain to me. I don't need to explain to you why it is anti-Semitic. You need to explain to me why it's not. One of the other accusations that you hear quite often. Uh, you had mentioned the hyperbolized claims of genocide, and we covered that. Um, that you hear that Israel is an apartheid state. Mm -hmm. uh, again, I'm not asking you to make the case for the people or to steel man the argument that's being made by those people, but only to explain. Um, my understanding is that it is not, and this is a somewhat ridiculous claim, but like, could you just break it down, um, the, the claim that's being made and, and what you make of it? Right. So there are, um, both in Israel and especially in um, uh, Judea and Samaria, what people call the West Bank. Um, you know, Israel pulled out of Gaza in 2005. Um, I was there getting married when it was happening. So Israel doesn't have any presence in Gaza anymore. Um, Hamas rules Gaza. Uh, Israel controls the borders so that you know, people and things can't get in and out because they don't want rockets getting in easily. They still manage to get in, obviously. Um, but Israel doesn't have any control over what happens day to day in Gaza. Um, that's different in Judea and Samaria. 
Uh, and it's obviously, you know, Israel controls Israeli territory, which includes East Jerusalem. East Jerusalem was annexed by Israel in, I want to say, the early 80s. I think Begin did it. So um, the, there are unfairnesses, uh, including unfairnesses written into law, especially in the, in the West Bank. Um, and uh, people look at those unfairnesses uh, and view them out of context and only see the unfairness. Um, what's missing and what made apartheid apartheid is a racial component. There is no racial component uh, to what Israel is doing in Judea and Samaria or to laws um, in Israel proper. There's no racial component at all. A lot of people don't realize this, but half of the population of Israel, more than half actually of the population of Israel are themselves descended from Arab countries. These are Jews who were kicked out of Yemen and Morocco and Iraq and, and other places um, in the early 1950s in retaliation for the founding of the state of Israel. Those countries stole all of the property of their Jewish communities and kicked them out of the country. Uh, and they sought refuge in Israel. Israel brought them in. And now more than half of the country is descended from Arab countries. So uh, there's no racial component to this. It's a security measure. Uh, there is a population of people that lives among civilians. It is a large population of people living among civilians in the Palestinian territories uh, that want to blow up buses and kill Jews. And Israel's job is to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, so there's no racial component. This is a security decision. And it's a difficult, painful, ugly reality. Um, and it's not fair. You know, the uh, you and I talked a little bit about the uh, the situation in Sheikh Jarrah, the neighborhood um, in Jerusalem that kind of sparked this latest round. And I don't want to bore people with Ottoman era real estate law, but the the reality is that uh, you know it, it began with a legal dispute that went all the it took decades to go through Israel's independent judiciary system and ended up at the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court made the only decision available to it to make based on the law in Israel. Uh, I will tell you, and I, I don't usually talk about these things in public, but I'll tell you, I think that law is a little unfair. I, I understand why it's written the way that it's written, um, but it is a little unfair. Uh, that's not apartheid. <laughs> that, the idea there is that, the, that Israel is the only Jewish state in the, in the world and making sure that Jews can live there and build homes is a priority of the state. Um, but there's, unlike South Africa, there's no racial component to it. Uh, Palestinians uh, living in Israel proper, and there are many, uh, are equal citizens, have full equal rights, have, they vote, uh, they have members of Knesset, not just in their own parties, but there are Arab members of the main parties. Even Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party has Arab members of it and Arab uh, Arab members of parliament. Uh, so I, you know, I the the reason, but the reason that's such an ugly charge is because this is how long it takes to explain why it's not true, and you know, it's not something that can be easily explained away, and. Um, and because there are elements of unfairness in the Israeli system, as by the way, there are elements of unfairness pretty much everywhere humans are involved. Uh, and because I wanna be honest about it, I can't just dismiss it, I have to explain it. Um, and once you do that, you know, to parties who aren't interested in your explanation uh, and other parties who aren't capable of thinking beyond slogans, you've already lost. And it's, it's an insidious, nasty charge. And again, it's, it's, apartheid is evil. So if you're accusing Israel of doing something that evil, you know, you permit all kinds of responses that otherwise wouldn't be acceptable. How concerning is it to you that the way our politics has sorted, that you ostensibly have one party that is supportive of one party, one political side that is supportive of the state of Israel. And you have one party and another political side that is opposed to it. I mean, this is 
this is a phenomenon that is happening across issues. I recently talked to Congressman Peter Meyer, um, where I also made the point we were talking about uh, his bipartisan record in Congress and, and how difficult it can be to work in those ways. And in in part because you know, 40 years ago, if I asked if you were a Republican or Democrat, I'd have to ask if you were a conservative, uh, another question to find out if you were conservative or a liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have sorted almost entirely so that, you know, you know, the Republican Party is the party of this set of issues, almost without exception. And the Democratic Party is the party of this set of issues, almost without exception. Mm-hmm. And Israel in general strikes me as one of those that was still hanging around as the kind of thing that had more broader bipartisan support. But as we've discussed, that seems to be also being divided up amongst the, you know, pro goes in this camp, anti goes in that camp. Yeah. So it concerns me for two reasons. Uh, And I'll start with the American reason first. Um, You have a wildly different policy as of January 20th of this year than you had on January 19th. Right. The 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 Biden administration didn't move the embassy back uh, to Tel Aviv, um, but they've done a lot of other changes in Trump era policy. And because things are so uh, things are so polarized and and it's not just that things are polarized among um, decision makers and policy elites, they're polarized among the base and the base wants to see you support this stuff or the base wants to see you not support this other stuff. And, um, and that's true on both sides. Uh, I look at something like the Iran uh, nuclear deal um, and the way president Obama pushed that through where it uh, required enough votes to override a veto. So the, the Congress wasn't given a chance to approve it. Congress had to disapprove it in legislation meaning the president could veto it, meaning you needed two thirds of both houses to override the president's veto. It should have been a treaty, right? That's how we used to make big, important international decisions. We had treaties. And when we couldn't get treaties through the Senate, we either changed the treaty or we didn't join the treaty. Here, we did something very different, and as far as I know, completely unique. Uh, And so President Trump comes in and just trashes it, right? So again, policy changes in a matter of minutes. A different person comes in to the Oval Office and policies, this policy is completely out the door. This totally different policy is in the door. Um, And then January 20th of this year, it flips and Trump is out and with him his Iran policy and Biden is back in and the Iran deal is, they're renegotiating an Iran deal right now and we're giving away the store. And regardless of what you think about the Iran deal, that's a terrible way to do international policy. It's schizophrenic. Um, Our friends have no idea where we're going to be one minute to the next. Our enemies have no idea where we're going to be one minute to the next. It's why we have a treaty mechanism. Um, There needs to be broad approval of things. We've gotten pretty far away from that on a lot of things, not just foreign policy and treaties. So it concerns me from an American standpoint. I think it's unhealthy. Um, It can, and uh, obviously from an Israeli standpoint, but focusing on uh, staying with America, my second concern is the Jewish community, because the pro-Israel party is not where most Jews are. 70%, 75% of American Jews are Democrats. And they're not kind of Democrats. They're highly identified Democrats. Being a Democrat, being a political liberal is part of their identity. Um, the movement from which I come, the reform movement, has largely handed itself over to left-wing politics and calls that Judaism. And they're still a Zionist movement. They Just a, a year or so ago, they, they uh, reiterated the, 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 the passion with which they hold Zionist ideals. Um, well, if the, if the party that they all identify with is suddenly going to be uh, the anti-Israel party, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think their politics is going to win and they'll stay with the Democratic Party and they'll either shut up or become anti-Israel or their kids will become anti-Israel, which, by the way, is what's happening, uh, or they'll go over and vote with Marjorie Taylor Greene, which is what they think of of all of us on the right. Uh, I'll tell you what's going to happen. They're going to abandon support for Israel. Um, And uh, it's already happening. I mean, you, you see 
the, the, the Jewish Democrats in Congress, there are, I think, 26 Jewish Democrats. Um, most of them shut up during the rocketing. They had a couple of mealy mouth things to say, um, but none of them would take on uh, the smears of Israel from the squad. None of them would stand up and unequivocally say that Israel was right. Everything had to be, you know, caveats and couching. And, uh, and then when uh, a letter came out either yesterday or the day before criticizing House members, not by name, but criticizing some House members for going too far in their criticisms of Israel, only four Jewish Democrats would sign it. Um, and, uh, um, you know, two of the guys that I used to work with at APAC, who were APAC activists before they ran for Congress, Ted Deutsch and Brad Schneider, neither of them signed it. Um, now, I don't know if they weren't, maybe they weren't approached, but I, I suspect they were. Um, so, uh, so my, those are my two, I have an American concern and I have an American Jewish concern. There's also obviously an Israeli concern. You know, what happens if Israel's support or America's support for Israel on the international stage diminishes? Um, that concerns me. It concerns me for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, I, I prefer Israel to be aligned with free countries. Uh, the more those free countries prove themselves to be Israel's enemies, as most of Europe already has, the more Israel's going to seek international uh, relationships with unfree countries, uh, China especially. And I'd rather that didn't happen. Um, they'll do what they need to do. They have a country to maintain. Um, uh, and they're, they themselves are a free country. And so I think they align better with us. But if you're going to have a whole political party over here that, you know, turns increasingly toward pressuring them to commit national suicide, well, they're not going to do that. Uh, they're going to seek other friends. What, if anything, can average person do about anti-Semitism? That's a good question. Um, so uh, the average. So let me start with the Jewish community, which is the community I know best, community I'm part of, and the the community I've been talking to the most in the last couple of weeks, especially you know, tweeting stuff out. I am a big believer that we need to be able to defend ourselves. I think one of the things that um, Zionism should have convinced us of is that um, it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter how many friends you have, um, it can happen where you are. And um, I think history should have shown us that by now. History should have shown us that um, we are alone. Um, I, I know we have friends in the non-Jewish community in America, unlike any we've ever had anywhere in human history. Um, and still, if it came to it, the overwhelming majority of our friends would save themselves, which is human nature and to be expected. And that's the reason you have monuments only to some people and not monuments to everybody, because not everybody ends up deserving a monument. Um, I'd like to think that in America, we'd have more friends uh, than anywhere else. I think we would. Um, uh, but we need to be able to take care of ourselves. We need to be able to defend our own communities. And, you know, the, everybody's on Twitter cheering yesterday when Governor Cuomo in New York announced that I, I think it was the New York State Police is going to be uh, dispatched in mass to New York City uh, this weekend to protect synagogues, to help the NYPD protect synagogues. Um, that didn't make me happy at all. Uh, I'd rather see, frankly, armed Jews protecting our synagogues. Um, I'd, I'd rather see us defending ourselves. Um, a lot of megachurches have congregants who uh, work together to provide security. I'd like to see groups doing that in the Jewish community. I know there are some that already do it quietly. Um, I'd like that to be more of a thing. I would like for people to know that if they think about wandering into a synagogue on a Saturday morning that they're likely to meet with some resistance and that we're not sitting ducks. There's a reason that you don't see people go in and try to shoot up biker bars, right? It's because it's not a soft target. Um, I would like for synagogues to stop being seen as soft targets. Um, so that's, I mean, that the first thing I, I think is that years, in, I don't know how many years ago it was, I don't know when Jabotinsky wrote this, probably about a hundred years ago. Uh, a, a writer, the, the father of uh, the ideology that formed what's today called the Likud party, uh, is a man named Zev Jabotinsky. And uh, probably 100 years ago, he wrote, Jewish youth learned to shoot. Um, he believed that the only way that we could have any pride was to be able to defend ourselves. And I think that's true. So that's that's what Jews can do. Uh, and I think, you know, take, you know send, sending our kids to Krav Maga classes, um, you know, arming ourselves, uh, making sure that we know how to take care of ourselves, 
um, I, I think is is something that's key. Uh, our non-Jewish friends, I think uh, it's a lot harder because most of our non-Jewish friends are good people and are not anti-Semites, right? I think that the, the number of saints is smaller than the number of jerks but both of those groups are dwarfed by the enormous number of people who are just decent in the middle, right? So that ordinary decent component of, of, of our, you know, non-Jewish neighbors, um, you know, I, I would, you know, be supportive of your local synagogues, uh, you know, reach out uh, to your own clergy, um, I think that, especially for Acton, something that happened a lot when I was a kid, and I think happens a lot less today. Um, I grew up in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is a heavily Catholic town. Um, and um, Bishop John Darcy was the bishop when I was growing up, um, and who was a, a wonderful, and I think I came to find out later in, in life, a great man. Um, and he and my rabbi were friends. And we did a lot of Jewish Catholic dialogue. The, there was a group from St. Mary's Church, which was the this beautiful old cathedral that sadly burned down, hit by lightning and burned down. Um, and, and our synagogue would get together once a month and uh, have Jewish Catholic dialogue. And I think that there's so much that, there's a lot of bad history between Jews and Catholics, but there's so much in common. Catholicism is um, in important ways, I think like, Judaism. I mean, obviously there are significant theological differences, but a lot of the cultural stuff in Catholicism strikes me as similar uh, to us, which isn't surprising, right? Catholicism was the first, uh, you know, kind of outgrowth of Christianity, and it, it grew out of, to no small, for no small extent, Judaism. Um, we're cousins, and I think there's a lot, to, there's a lot to talk about, a lot to learn about one another, to demystify one another. And I think if your church isn't doing that, ask your ask your priest why. Uh, you know, if your diocese isn't doing it, ask the bishop why. Um, and and ask if you know they'd be willing to do it. Uh, so I you know, the the more we know each other, uh, the easier all this is. It's a lot harder to dislike somebody that you know. Jonathan Greenberg is Director of Freedom Initiatives at the Jack Miller Family Foundation. He's the former Midwest Political Director for the American Israel Public Affairs Committee and an ordained Reform Rabbi. Jonathan Greenberg, thanks so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thanks, Eric. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Gabriel Zsazsa.